when you start to build a reputation for yourself and the the proof is there, the product is there, um, people will come to you more. You're like, hey, I want to invest money with you. I want to, you know, I look at this property, look at these things, and and it's it becomes a much different ball game. And I think that's why you know we named ourselves Ariad Hospitality Group because that was our first one, and that that is you know our crown jewel, I guess, if you will. Um, because that little restaurant that so many people wrote off so quickly uh, then continued to turn pages, and now it's going into its fifth and a half to sixth year. Welcome to Bungle Podcast. I am Nick Jimenez. We are not joined by Petey the Dog, but let him know that you miss him on Instagram at Petey the Dog, P-E-A-T-Y the Dog. Should never record without Petey. And we are also here with our host and noted restaurant tycoon, Tycoon Michael Beltran, yeah. the uh, the Dale Carnegie <laughs> of Pan Compata, <laughs> the Jeff Bezos of Tamal and Cazuela. Oh man! Actually, there was a uh, I think somebody re- like referred to you as like wanting to be the Jeff Bezos of restaurants. Uh, cool. I mean, I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess. Uh, uh, okay. Sure. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, I was going to say, spe- we just haven't done this in a while where there's no guest involved. Yeah. Uh, thank God. Uh, I mean, maybe thank God, but the people like this, the people want to know what's going through your head. And I think it's also good for you to get these things out of your system so that, you know, so you're not pouncing on people when we have guests. I don't pounce them. on people when we have guests. Uh, not pouncing on them, but you know, I, I get it. Sometimes you got to have a little release. You got to get these things out. Do I pounce on people? No, I shouldn't have said pounce on people. You more like pounce on the recording. Are you are you kindly saying I talk too much? No, I th- no. I think you say things when it'd be more appropriate for this setting, which is why we do these. That's all, right, all I'm great. Saying. So, uh, the Washington Post recently uh, wrote an article about you uh, because they are generally in the habit of not just about me, about us. It was about the company. And that's true. That's fair. Okay. Uh, but there was a lot of criticism of you in response to the story. Love that. So the headline of the of the piece, which you can find, you can Google Michael Beltran, Washington Post, and you will find an article, the head of which is, as his restaurant's customers return, a Miami chef is missing a critical ingredient, workers. <laughs> and it's, the, quite, it's quite a dramatic... Uh, yeah. And the subhead is, buoyed by a huge spring break and tourist influx, South Florida restaurants are having a boom with no hourly workers to service them. That's... Listen, I and I think Laura Riley did a great job in the article. I just think that that's... Like, just those two things are not necessarily a lot of things that I said. Um, and so, that's just the title they wanted to put on it, which is right. cool. And, and I get drama, sex sells. And some of this might have come up at other point, but and I may be telling some people things they already know. But as a general rule, the author of the piece is very rarely the one who comes up with the headline. Um, I didn't know that actually. Yeah, that's very rare that that happens. Yeah, I could uh, tell that her um, editors were trying to like maybe pull something else out of me because they asked me like additional questions after she spent the day here, and that I was just kind of like, yeah, I mean, I guess here's my answer to that you're probably not going to like it, which I uh, I was actually sad they didn't put one of the things which I can read actually what I responded to one of their things in an email. Sure, yeah, why not? Yeah, but before we get there, so I just because people may be curious and. Uh, Talk a bit about what the process was uh, of 
the reporting? I mean, you weren't doing the reporting, but what, yeah, what, what mean, did they do to end up with that story? They spent time well, here, et cetera, et cetera. Laura had sent me an email. She was cool. We communicated back and forth. She was like, I just want to like follow you for a day uh, and kind of get the overall gist of what it's like, the, the staffing situation right now. I said, all right, cool. That's, that's fine. She actually happened to follow on one of my busiest days of the week because Thursdays are like ops meetings, follow up on construction meetings. That that day we actually had a branding meeting for two possible concepts um, that are not uh, a sure bet yet. Um, <coughs> so she made it to service and then she stopped. Okay. Uh, but it was cool. I mean, she was in all of our ops meetings and ops. obviously we talk about staffing. And um, I think she ended up having dinner she had a great time. She was great. I thought that the questions that she asked were um, overall relevant to the state of affairs in the industry right now, not necessarily about the the topic itself, but just a roundabout way of asking about the topic. Right. So then that was like a previous week, and then the article came out on Mother's Day. So it was like an eight-day in between. Yeah. So uh, what were your impressions reading the article? Um, I thought that... You know, like were there things that you thought you had tried to get across that didn't come across? Things that you thought they did an especially good job of getting across? Yeah, I think that there was things that I, I definitely tried to get across that I don't think that totally got got across very well. I also think that some of the structure of the actual article makes it seem like we say things when we didn't. There's like an economist that says something about minimum wage and how paying people minimum wage. Like we don't pay anyone minimum wage. Um, so like things like that, I can understand why... Uh, people who aren't great at like actually reading uh, would look at that and say, are you trying to, okay. Um, Sorry. Uh, Are are seeing that and saying like, maybe, maybe I would have said that or whatever. So I get it. But um, I think that was the only thing. And I, I feel like maybe she tried to draw drama or they tried to draw drama out of a situation that for me wasn't all that dramatic. It was just another Thursday. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's it. Okay. So, um, more or less in summary, the story is about that, right? About the fact that yours, like so many other uh, yeah. hospitality businesses and restaurant groups, having trouble staffing things and the way you were before. I just want to, like, I, to- I told them, too. I was like, we're having a hard time staffing, but we've always had a hard time staffing. We had a hard time staffing pre-pandemic. We had a hard time staffing pre-pandemic because our standards are higher. And that's just par for the course. Yeah, like before, if we were down one person, maybe we're down two. Um, But this is is the kind of company that people go to when they're looking to make a career of this. Yeah, I mean, I hope. And I think um, our staffing situation is actually a lot better than a lot of other people that I talk to. Right. Because we're very competitive wage-wise. And we, since we are a bigger company, we can compete with some of the bigger companies, not quite as well, uh, but we can. So I think that maybe they wanted more drama out of it, and I get it. Um, but I, I, I definitely wasn't offering that. I was just like, this is my day. These are the things that we talk about. This is how it is. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's really it. Yeah. So the main reason that we're here recording this is because in response to the story, 
there were a lot of comments. Yeah, there was I think, a lot. I, I and don't know how phone many, calls. And phone calls. So and I, phone calls. I don't know how many there are now, but at least as of like a few days ago, it was like 2.8 thousand comments. Yeah, there's like 3,000 comments now. Yeah. But so, the things have moved on to more important things. Like, you know how it's everyone, like, media cycles oh, last yeah, 24 yeah, sure, hours. Sure, right. You know, so it's like, it was like 2,800 comments in like 24 hours, and then it was like something else happened, like, you right. know, and then they were done. So at the time that I actually saw the comments, there were like maybe 40, mm-hmm. if that. So I copied and pasted them all. We don't, we're not going to go through all 40 comments. Right. Because it's also a little repetitive. But um, in general, at least at that time, they were pretty overwhelmingly critical of you specifically. Yeah, I love that. And I'm going to remove myself here in terms of like commentary on the comments. Okay. I'm sure you got that covered. Uh, I got it covered. People, I'm sure, have more, more interested in what you have to say about it. I'm sure. Uh, so I'll just start at the top. DJ Kenyon01 okay. says, I'm sure I'm not the first person to make this point. And then he quotes from the story. Their salaries at the restaurants, which can range from eight sixty-five per hour for a tipped worker to around $14 per hour for a line cook. And then, close quote. Hmm, I wonder if I might be able to figure out what the problem is here. How can anyone even live in Miami on $14 an hour? And why does Mr. Fancy Chef <laughs> oh, that's treat right. his line cooks like disposable, untrained human robots? Congrats to the writers of this story for a remarkable job of burying the lead. I know Bezos also likes to treat his employees like disposable human robots, so I suppose I'm not surprised. Bezos, by the way, is the owner of the Washington Post. Which I didn't know until they wrote it oh, in yeah. there. I didn't know that. And I was like, oh, well, that's nice. Um, that's actually one of the pieces in there that I was like, well, we didn't say that. That's not necessarily what we pay people. Um, so so what, is, what was the context of that then? I think it was like some economist said that or okay. like that's what going rate is or I don't know, some shit like that. I'm yeah. pretty sure. but I think that, they even specifically say in the piece that you wouldn't say what you paid people. Right. Because I, I don't, I think because of experience and because of rules, like everything is different. Um, but yeah, I mean... Um, we don't pay people minimum wage, you know, hourly employees. Tipped workers also make an excess of thirty-five to forty dollars an hour. Um, they have a base, though, so it depends how you want to look at that. If you want to say that the whole restaurant structure is fucked, I mean, if you want to try to change that, that's on you, man. Right? Like I, you know, I, uh, and obviously, I've had lots of those conversations and thoughts myself about, you know, can can we change that? I mean, right now we're just fighting to survive at this point. So, um, I think, uh, I mean, I I would, I would somewhat agree with the guy who calls me fancy chef. Like, you know, you shouldn't pay a line cook eight sixty five an hour. Um, well here, what he's referring to is paying the line cook 14 an hour. Yeah. I mean, they, they should make anywhere between 14 to 20 bucks an hour, depending on their experience. Right. So what this guy is saying is that that's, that 14 is no good. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, his opinion. Right. I also, I also know that, and I think it's kind of like, a the industry itself, because of how schooling has changed for chefs specifically, you know, they walk out of culinary school one with an idea of like, well, they told me in school, I'm going to be a sous chef when I leave. And I'm like, no. And then you also leave there with so much debt that you're trying to pay that debt back. Right. And so like a guy like me that I worked for Norman for nine bucks an hour, albeit you know, 14 years ago or whatever. Uh, that's not the same thing now. 
you know, you have to start at the bottom to get to the top. You, mm-hmm. No one just walks in at the top. So that's what it is. Right. So moving on, just to go to another uh, another thing. Illinois 218 says, building more restaurants when there isn't, when, sorry, building more restaurants when there's a problem staffing the existing ones doesn't sound like a good idea. It just raises the already limited overhead. All of the reasons for non-returning workers and low and low hiring of new personnel are valid. Fear of lack of stability, out of work too long, so went elsewhere. New job with better pay, forced to move, and more. The comment's a little bit incoherent. <laughs> Super. None of that actually made any sense. But there was a recurring theme in some of the comments that I remember about, like, uh, and I think this is this speaks to like a different aspect of the business that uh, maybe people don't quite get. Mm. Criticism of, well, how are you telling me that you can't pay your workers, but you can m- try to move forward mm-hmm. with all the expense of opening your restaurants? Sure. Um, and I guess for someone who doesn't understand how the business investment part goes, you know, a lot of things that we're currently working on were pre-COVID. You know, they were just halted because of the whole COVID thing. And, um, you know... A lot of like my name, my partner's names are personally guaranteed on paperwork that, you know, we would be incredibly poor for the rest of our lives if we didn't work through them. So that's one. And then two, um, you know, a lot of times you don't invest your own money into restaurants. You have people that want to invest into something with you, a bit, whatever business it may be. And then they come to the table and they, you know, put money into different concepts. That money doesn't flow for the company as a whole unless they're um, investing to the company as a whole, which is a possibility uh, if the heads of the company want to make it so. So business structure, you know, like how people structure their business and how they grow their business is totally up to them. Yeah. Um, you know, Chugs is different than Ariette. Nave is different than Ariette. Ariette is different than Taurus. Taurus is different than Scapegoat. All of them have different partners involved. So... Yeah, I mean, I like if people wanted to answer the very incoherent question, it would be like, you know, there's different businesses within one business. Yeah, I would also say, um, and this, there's sort of like an implicit question here, but there's also, I guess, you know, if I were putting myself in the position of some of these people who, for whom everything seems to revolve or like, Inserting my own, like, perspective here. Here we go. A, a lot of these comments seem to come from the place that, like, you're in the business of feeding people. Like, no, you're in the business of, of restaurants and these employees to the extent that interests align and you're paying it, whatever, there's opportunity there for them. Yeah. But your primary concern is for producing an experience, a product, whatever. Sure. And then, of course, if you find, like, if there's not enough value there to justify paying an employee, then it's not viable. I, but the, so what I was, but there's also the, like, even if I were thinking like your only obligation is to the employee, there's right. still an element there of like the employee is better off. And you saw some of this through COVID just because of how you were already built in part, because you didn't obviously didn't build it that way with pandemic in mind. Right. But the employee is better off when there is that diversification, when there are places to move people, when there's For growth sure. opportunity. And yeah. so a lot of these comments seem to assume that, the people working, you know, for you or, or in the company don't themselves see value to like, oh, the company I'm in is creating all this new shit. Right. I mean, uh, I, I want to follow up with another point. But yes, I mean, sometimes 
you know, like um, my chef at Ariette has been there for a year and a half and, you know, hopefully he doesn't go anywhere. Him not going anywhere means that there's a ceiling for people and there's a lot of other good people that want to grow within the company or just grow themselves. So, and I, I, I never really agree with David Chang sometimes, but something he did say once that I did agree with was I have really good people and I want them to stay within the company and for them to stay within the company, I need to grow to create more jobs for them so that they can make more money so they can have their own, I think, expression and upward movement and stuff, because eventually there, you know, there's going to be a ceiling if someone's already there and they're great too. And, you know, and they, they could leave, which I'm totally supportive of, and they can go somewhere else and grow. Um, it's just it's just partly the thing. And it makes you nimble. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, sometimes I, I think a big part of management, too, is like finding the place where somebody fits for them to be successful. And maybe they don't fit in a certain restaurant, but maybe they would fit great for another one. And the other one's on the bend going to open mm. in three months. So maybe they move over there. They make more money. They have a bigger title. And they flourish. Um and also, like, to double down on the um, the financial aspect, too, of it is with the growth, um, landlords, you know, like, we're an opportunity-based company, right? So people come with us, come to us with opportunity, and if they present a great deal, then it's something that we're willing to entertain. But sometimes these deals, especially the ones that we're doing now, have been negotiated for years. Mm-hmm. Like, this is... Two years of work by both of my partners negotiating lease terms, a legal team, like going through every like everything before it even gets to me to say, remember that concept we talked about a year ago? It looks like this is going to actually fold over and it's going to happen. And with that, there's landlords that are very uh, monetarily motivated that want to assist in opening something. It all happens with time. Like usually your first one, like my first one, nobody gave me shit for that like area. And I think that's why I'm so connected to that. It was like a lot of the blood, sweat and tears of myself to get that open. Right. Um, but the other one's like, Oh, you guys are great. You, gotta, you know, what about this space? What about that space? And then they, you know, they, they're very motivated too. Cause they know if this is very in deep, like sure, yeah. business stuff, but like they know that the more that you're successful, the more they could charge commercial commercially around you. Right. And the more they could charge commercially around you, the more their property value goes up. So then they're worth 10 times, 14 times, 20 times what they once originally were worth. So they need you to be successful. And that's why they're going to plug in a good operator there. Ask everyone in Miami how successful the design district was before Michael's Genuine. Yeah. And they would say it wasn't. And that's kind of the point. Uh, So I'll just throw this one in there. It's not really for you to respond because it's sort of sticking on the same topic. But I just like the... Snark of H. Nutsworth. Says, <laughs> That's good. Maybe don't open five new restaurants during a pandemic? Question mark. Yeah. So good. there's that. Uh, Slacker George mm. says there was a mention of government loans helping the owner, but nothing as to whether any of it was used to protect payroll, and if so, to which workers, corporate employees, and or waiters, cooks, dishwashers. I mean, the way that those things work is to help the employees. That's if uh, anyone did their due diligence on the PPP program, uh, it all had to go towards payroll, had to go towards rent, and it had to go towards things. It's not like um, anyone, like any owner who 
did the PPP stuff and was like greedy in the corner, like, I'm going to keep all this. Like, you can't. You have to pay back. So right. you have to prove that this went to payroll. This went to things. So, All right. So I think this would be best pronounced as surfing psalm. Oh, I like that. It's a picture of a guy surfing. Take it. He may be a psalm. Maybe. Don't know. I'm a tipped restaurant employee in San Diego, California. I haven't seen a lot of opening slash help wanted signs for front of house workers. This one's a little longer, by the way, but uh, just fast food and the low tip or no tip type places. We get our full minimum tip uh, plus tips out here, and most restaurants give their staff a fairly set schedule. Some of the local chef owners have put a 3% surcharge on checks to offset local hourly wage increases pre-COVID or raise prices or both. Many restaurants have their tipped front of house people Tip out of the kitchen, tip out the kitchen, hostesses, etc. No one in California can survive on a forty-hour minimum wage job, and a lot of our kitchen guys are working six-hour shifts, making just one or two dollars over minimum—a definite problem. And most are working two jobs. Can't blame people for wanting an air-conditioned warehouse, but it's not for me. As to health insurance, we have a state-supported marketplace for insurance through the ACA, and that helps. But it's on the individual to sign up and pay. I paid uh, my own even before that. I know being an, owner, uh, being an owner is hard work, hard all capital letters, but I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for people who are constantly leveraging assets and crying poor with the hopes of building a little empire, which effectively just benefits themselves, looking to be the local Jeff Bezos of restaurants. <laughs> Another Bezos reference. I think it, this was the one I was probably talking about oh. before. Uh, you can still make a comfortable living in our business without chasing that type of, quote, success. P.S. I'm vaccinated. And most of us are out here, and we are on our clientele about mask requirements. I don't know why he needed to throw in a mask. Yeah, no, I get it. Everyone's got their thing. To, I mean, he, he makes a lot of good points. I don't – I mean, um, tipped employees, uh, from last I checked, can't tip out kitchen employees here. Uh, you have to have engagement with a guest in order to be a tipped employee. Um, so, you know, whether it be a busser, bartender, food runner, those kind of things, like all those – they have to have interaction with the guest. Okay. So, you know, no kitchen people actually make tips here. That's why they're, I guess, that's why their wages here are higher than what that guy's talking about. Um, but, you know, uh, I don't, some of the things that he mentions in there, like I, they don't, they don't pertain to Florida. Right. You know, that uh, Florida is different. So, you know, like I said, our, our front of the house employees, you know, like if it's, if they do great and. You know, they work their full five days and they work their 40 hours. They easily make 35 to 40 bucks an hour. And, um, you know, the same goes for food runners and bartenders and the whole thing. Um, as for cooks, you know, they don't get tips. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes you'll have like uh, somebody who comes in that, you know, gives the kitchen like a $100 bill and whatever. And then we'll end up splitting it between everybody. But it's not a, a common occurrence. So just because tips have come up a couple times, mm -hmm. uh, what's the sense that you, like, I, I imagine the topic must come up uh, with your own employees or even before, like, mm -hmm. I, maybe this has changed, but maybe when you were not an owner, you probably had some of these conversations or were around them. Uh -huh. What's the sense that you get from at least the people who work for you? And I say you specifically because we've established, like, you're not a perfect comparison to a lot of other restaurants. Sure the things you deal with and that your employees have in mind for their lives and how it relates to their work in a restaurant is not the same as it is at a McDonald's, at an Applebee's, Absolutely at not. a barbecue joint. Like it's totally different things. Yeah. How, how would you say that people call it fine dining mm -hmm. or in your company respond to the prospect or the notion or the proposal of like eliminate tips? 
I mean, I would say that a lot of front of the house staff was not for that. And that, and I think that's why the people that have done that have failed mm-hmm. because I mean, you know, there's like lifer front of the house people that are very happy being a service person and some of them make 80 grand, some of them make a hundred grand, you know, depending where they work, some of them make 70 grand and they work their 35 to 40 hours a week and they're very good at what they do. And that's just kind of like what they want to do. And then when you tell them like, okay, we're going to change the system and you're going to pay 48,000 a year or 55,000 a year, they're going to be like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to go elsewhere where I could just do this. Right. So I would say that that's probably a pretty common occurrence. And I think that um, usually uh, the managers <clears throat> that go from being a tipped employee to then a manager the only reason that they do that is they want some more stability. Um, you know, because, uh, you know, if it rains and you only do 20 covers in a night that you're going to do 70 covers, you know, like the server will probably make a decent amount of money, but not the money they want to make. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, some of these front of house managers that also want to grow within a company and they want to become a manager, maybe they want to become a de- director, a beverage director, whatever. They just want to see that growth and they're okay with the stability and the stability aspect of it. Got it. Um, Beanie Baby. Yeah, that's good. Beanie Baby says, maybe I missed something, but nowhere in this article did I get a hint of a suggestion of an innuendo that Beltran ever considered paying higher wages to entice workers back to work. That might have something to do with the, quote, shortage of applicants. Yeah, no, I mean, I wish that was the case. Like, I think if, if you were to look at the company as a whole from, like, day one to now, I mean, our wages have increased, like, fucking 40% probably across the board. And that's only because at the beginning, I did everything by myself. Um, and, you know, to find people of that quality, you obviously need to pay people, right. you know, proper amounts. And, yeah, I mean, like, we definitely – but we started paying people more beforehand. And then obviously COVID happened and then we continued paying people more afterwards. Um, I think the, what people are like trying to get out of me is like, you know, you should start people off at like a certain amount. I don't think that that's the case. Everybody's different. What if they've never held a knife in their life and they just want to learn how to cook? I'm not going to pay that guy the same thing that someone that's been working for 10 years is making. And that's kind of what I was referring to before, right? Like your obligation is not to provide for the employee it's to compensate them for the value they're bringing and yeah i think the, but the, I, I think if you're looking at that in a re- very regimented way like the way you just said it i i agree but at the same time it's just more like you want to learn how to cook i'm going to teach you how to cook right that's usually what i tell people right i'll teach you how to cook right but you a lot of people pay to go to school right you're getting paid to gain an education sure the flip side of that would be Rather than pay to go to school, you're right. sacrificing some pay to learn here. Which I, I honestly, and I say a lot, like, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have gone to work for Norman earlier than going to culinary school. Right. Because, I mean, I I took on a ton of debt for very little reason when I could have just learned on the job and probably been, I probably could have sped up certain parts of my career because of that. Mel Walker says, I use, uh, I worked at a software place before. Uh, I worked at a software place once. They had a lot of contract workers without insurance and such. About six months after I started, the area economy picked up and contractors left for better jobs management, judging by their comments and meetings, looked at it as an unexpected betrayal. 
They were a cheap company, paying lower salaries, hiring contractors, and refusing to upgrade old equipment. The workers were not surprised, but management constantly was. If people can make more money or get better benefits or have a better, more rounded life elsewhere, they won't work for you. No amount of Republican rhetoric will change that reality. So I think that this, again, the, these are varying degrees of coherence here, but it sort of ties in with the last thing. And I think that there are like hints there at the idea that, uh, and we talked about it in the not yet released episode with Pablo, also in the one that we just put out today. This is, uh, today is what, the May 14th. We just released the conversation with Nadal Ahmad. Some of the, uh, conversation was on the subject of how uh, changes to unemployment benefits and all that affect people's willingness to go back to work. And we talked about the idea of like people suggesting that there's laziness Mm -hmm. versus there being like a rational response. Um, And at least where I land is like, I, I don't think that people got lazy. I think that as with anything, when there are changes to the incentive structure, at least some percentage of people are going to change their behavior. Like that's, that's just what happens. It's human nature. Any of us would do that. Everybody's got a line. Like if somebody came around and handed you X amount and then X plus one and X plus one and X plus one, eventually you get to the point that you start changing your relationship with your day job. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, why would I do that? Sure. And there was a little bit of that in, in the article, right? Like there was uh, at, at least some of the people quoted in the piece. And I forget now, whether these specific quotes I'm thinking of were your employees or other people's, but they did it. Like some of them acknowledged, like uh, they didn't come out and say like, Oh, because of these benefits or whatever. But like when people were furloughed, uh, took the time maybe to, uh, to do X or Y activity that wasn't necessarily like scrambling to find new income. And that's a good example, right? Like under other circumstances, under other pre COVID circumstances, the response is very different. Because you have new benefits. Because it's a pandemic that everybody's expecting will blow over at some point. Right. Uh, so I guess just like expand a little bit on that. Because other times that we've had that conversation, there's been another business owner in the room. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about your experience with uh, how employees you had to furlough or who left or whatever were making their decisions. I'm sure some of them communicated it to you, like, listen, Jeff, because of the X, Y, and Z, I'm doing A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, I I wish I could answer that question for everyone. I just know a few, and I, I kind of want to read this thing that I responded to their question because mm-hmm. it kind of had uh, some of this. So this is a question that the editors of the Post yeah. sent you after some of the reporting was done already. Right. Okay. You know, they asked about um, uh, about this, like, specific quote that people keep saying that, like, people are lazy. Um, and that's why they don't want to go to back to work and unemployment benefits and blah, blah. And this was my response. I said, the fact is staffing has always been tough. Is it a little more difficult now? Maybe. But the truth is, I very much understand the staffing shortage is bigger than just a statement I keep hearing. Quote, People are lazy and don't want to work, end quote. I see this very, very different. I feel that after the last 18 months, the toll that this whole pandemic has taken on people mentally is huge. I feel like there are real trust issues now between the employees and the employers, and I understand it from all angles. The industry has yet had time to heal from this whole thing, and it will take 
lots and lots of time to get there. It will be very much a process for all of us. I have heard all kinds of stories, and I just know what I personally tried to do during this time. How does this thing, how does this change things for us? And I go into like how we cap the books every day because, you know, we only have a certain amount of staff and we'd like to keep things, um, you know, we'd like to keep our standard at a certain level mm-hmm. and I'm okay with less revenue in order to keep those things the way that they are. Um, and then I entered, uh, I, I ended it with, you know, we have weathered the storm, but we now have to pick up the debris and rebuild our industry. And all I ask is for the talking heads out there to talk less and to do more. And what that means for me specifically is the conversation that people are lazy or people, whatever, that is the very easy way to look at this. And I think, and we've talked on this podcast a million times about mental health. There needs to be a different engagement with an employee and the employer too, to talk about like how they're doing, what the past year has been for them, where they see themselves growing, so on and so forth. And the truth is, is like I said at the beginning there, staffing has always been hard, right? Mm -hmm. Is staffing a little more difficult now? Maybe. But the truth is, is that the people who want to be in a certain place will, will be there. You know, and you need to create that environment that people want to be there. Mm. I I truthfully believe that um, the employee's distrust is merited, you know, whether they're sitting at home drinking Mai Tais on unemployment, I don't know. And I'm, I can't, I can't sit there and think about that because I have too much shit I got to do. Right. All I wanted, all I want to know is that people that do want to be here, they're happy with their job. They're happy with their pay. They're happy with all the things that we can provide. And with that, can we be there for them in several different ways, which is you need to just talk. I'm here to talk. You need to grow. You want to grow to a certain position. How can I help you get there? Like those are the things that I really want to concern myself with. Mm-hmm. Whether concerning myself with people who are lazy or not, that's not my like that's not my thing because I want to work with the people that want to be here. Right. Does it make it more difficult? Like is everything – yeah, shit's difficult, man. But shit was difficult before. And I just think that this continuous conversation, it just proves more of the point of how fucking lazy we are as a society to say, this is just the only reason. And I think that there's many more reasons. And I think that mental health is one of them. Like, you go from having a job that maybe you liked very much and everything was great or whatever to losing it the next day. And it's the same thing with the employer, right? The employer in that time was like... I was used to making this kind of revenue. I was running on maybe slim margins. Maybe I was losing money. Maybe I was fairly in the black. Maybe all those things. And then all your revenue is gone the next day? Yeah. With, at that time, no idea if there was government aid. No idea if the government was going to be there to help us. I mean, it was it, it was a time of, uh, I think, distrust for a lot of people. And I think to to say that this is the only reason is... It is lazy for the person to say that, right? you know, um, are there less workers? Sure. Because also at that time, maybe people created a new job for themselves, which is great. Maybe they found another passion for themselves. Maybe they found a better paying job, maybe a job that they like more. Who fucking knows? But at the same time, it's, it's our job as the employer to say, okay, this is the new set of rules, right? And we need to, we need to address accordingly. And, you know, that's just pretty much what I spent a lot of days doing. It's like, how can we – old restaurant structure, even from way the way kitchens were run to the way, re- like, restaurants were run in general, is going to change. Yeah. 
you know, and you just need to be ahead of the curve. So, so before, uh, let's end on these two topics. Okay. Just to not have this go on forever because it could. Um, and these next two questions or comments are really, uh, are things that I saw repeated also. Yeah. One of them was margins and the other was menu prices. Yeah, sure. So there's one comment. Greek. Oh, Greek cynic. Uh, That's Greek good. cynic says, if margins are so low that he cannot pay more to his workers, why is he opening more restaurants? He should instead be thinking about how to best deploy his capital. And then in response to that, uh, seal, C-E-I-L 420. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. That, w- that was one of my first thoughts on reading the article. Sounds like this restaurateur needs to get his current houses in order before he starts expanding. This article paints him less as a sympathetic small business owner and more of a greedy mogul that <laughs> just wants to expand his empire without doing what it takes to pay his current staff a living wage, let alone attract others to a positive and healthy workplace. Setting aside all of the ad hominem shit there, uh, talk about margins because I, mm. I think a lot... Forget people who don't get restaurants. I think there right. are a lot of people who just have never been exposed to the details of the margins of any business. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of assumption that like, oh, all the money that came in is mm-hmm. now in my wallet. It's mine. Yeah. This is all mine. But some people, not margins are not always in the 3 to 5% that you hear talked about with restaurants. No. Talk a bit about Absolutely like, not. how do you, obviously without getting into like a, you know, college seminar class right, here, right. but like how do you get to that point and maybe not so much like what are the solutions, but like is um, like why? why? Yeah, I mean, I, why is it that way? I just would like the the simplest mathematical way to explain things to people when it comes to how food happens and that price happens on your dish. Um, let's say something costs three dollars and fifty cents, right? Mm-hmm. The first dollar usually goes to the product. Hey, look, it's Geofessor. Hey. hey. It's a little too bright. There it is. <laughs> hold on, hold on. <laughs> That's Pastelito Bobby right there, ladies. Yeah, yeah. One of a kind, yeah. He's one of my exploited workers and partners. Um He's he's his own mogul. He is his own mogul, that's the best way to put it. Mathematics. Something costs three dollars and fifty cents, right? Yep. Or three twenty-five. The first dollar of the product goes to pay for the product itself, right? So that means that the base cost was a dollar. Mm-hmm. The second dollar goes to the employee or the employees that it took to make that product. The third dollar goes to your fixed and variable costs, which would be um, rent, light, gas. Uh, cleaning crew, uh, like things like that, and the last twenty twenty five cents or fifty cents, depending on how good your stuff is, goes to the restaurant. That is ideally. Right. That's not to take into account. Uh, so what if one of those three dollar three dollar and fifty cent pastries ended up in the garbage? Right. What if one fell on the floor? Or gets sent what, back by a customer? What? Or, right. Which yeah. is all. That's when. You know that fifty cent range. It depends how people want to price things out. That's how that happens. Now, what's the what's the range in like how much variation is there in that 
margin percentage in the restaurant business. And let's just limit it to Florida, right? Because mm-hmm. then you go to the other... I think it all depends because some people, the way that they, they look at their P&L is very different, right? So like they could say that, you know, the restaurant only trended at like 5% profitability this month, but then that 5% profitability was really like 18, but then 5% went into repairs, 5% went into this, 5%. Like it all depends how people break that down. So it's all more specific per company than it would be a general statement. So then here's another thing before we get to the question of prices. And we've had this, it's been a while since this came up at all. Uh, but talk a little bit about in a, in a restaurant group like yours, mm-hmm. where there is so much variety from concept to concept, the role, because those the margins are typically slimmer in fine dining than they would be if you were like yes. swinging burgers. Yes. So in your case. But can I, can yeah, I yeah, sure. off? So yeah, the margins are slimmer, but the revenue is higher. Right. right. So, you know, like coffee is a really good example because the margins on coffee are huge. Right. Right. Like, you know, a coffee could technically, depending on how shitty the bean is, could be 10 cents and you're paying two fifty four to three bucks. Right. But that owner of whatever property that is only made $2. So now right. for, they have to sell a thousand coffees in a day to make two grand. Now, you know, like traditionally it's a more, it's a more of an expertise to be able to do coffee well, but you know, that those baristas make 15, 17, 18 bucks an hour plus tips sometimes. And it's just like, it's a, it's a thing. Like that's why I say every business is very different and the product you're selling is very different. So it's hard to look at margins when it comes to a food-based product. Sometimes the market dictates what, what you can charge. Right. And what I was going to, what I was driving at before was in, in a case like yours where you're sort of building out over time, and now it seems like you're maybe in like this intermediate stage of that, right? Well, like not too long ago, it was just Ariette. Mm-hmm. And now it's expanding. And then over the course of the next year or two, it'll expand further. Even if Ariette were losing money, mm-hmm. it still plays an important role in that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Like all of the other businesses pull from mm-hmm. the gache yeah, that yeah. Ariette brings them. So Correct. there's still a place in the broader model for a for a concept with slim margins. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about that because I, I think that people sort of discount that because in the in the piece they mentioned that you're opening a hot dog concept. But it's because of Ariette. Like let's and this is not this is not the case as far as I know, but let's suppose that Ariette were in the red. It's because Ariette is Ariette that anybody will give a shit about your hot dog. That's correct. And that's kind of what I mentioned earlier is that when you start to build a reputation for yourself and the the proof is there, the product is there, um, people will come to you more. Be like, hey, I want to invest money with you. I want to, you know, I look at this property, look at these things, and and it's it becomes a much different ball game. And I think that's why you know we named ourselves Ariat Hospitality Group because that was our first one, and that that is you know our crown jewel, I guess, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, because that little restaurant that so many people wrote off so quickly uh, then continued to turn pages, and now it's going into its fifth and a half to sixth year. Yeah. Um, and then finally, uh, let me see. Let me just find. Uh... Okay. So lastly, prices. Yeah. And this was, to me, going through these comments, even though none of these ideas were like. There was a couple good ones, huh? They're not new to me, but, and listen, it's not like I'm a, you know, uh, an economist or anything, but it's mm-hmm. like, these are, it, it just blows my mind mm-hmm. how little thought some people seem to have given to 
these like basic economic questions. Sure. As an example, Bill 2987 says, things are booming. Customers are complaining that they can't be seated when there are empty tables, which, by the way, this person ignores that they can't be seated when there's empty tables because you can't fill it to capacity because no one can service it. Let's, let's set that stupidity aside. Right. Yet, oh, I remember this, yeah. this guy. So Yet he won't before. raise pay so that his employees earn a living wage because he'd have to raise his prices and he's afraid he won't be able to compete. None of this makes any sense. So that, that comment doesn't make any sense at all. So talk about the prices and respond just in broad terms to the person who says, if you want to make more money, why don't you just charge more? Yeah. So um, that would be nice. If you could, <laughs> that would that would be a really easy way to look at it. So we have a practice that we use here, um, and like I was explaining, the three dollar and fifty cent um, example, which I use with all of my chefs actually, um, and basically, you have a let's say you have a menu mix of like twenty twenty five items, right? Some of those items. Um, well, I think each individual item, we go through a practice that we recipe it out. We do a plate cost of it. And on that plate cost at the very end, it says if you were to charge, um, 35%, 30, I think it's 35, 32, 28, 25%. And it gives you what you should charge for the dish, right? So then we go through that and we say, okay, we'd ideally like to charge this for this because this is kind of like maybe the most or the least we we feel like this can go for. Maybe if it's like a very progressive dish that maybe not everyone would lean to, maybe you lower the price a couple bucks to make it a little more enticing because you really want people to try it. This is a big, it's a this is a big undertaking. So then after you do that whole thing, you take those percentages and then you look at what if you were to sell one of everything what the percentage average would be. Because mm. some items, they have may have a 40% cost and some items may have a 20% cost. You have to find somewhere that middle ground that's 30%, mm. right? So you go through that whole practice and that really is what dictates menu pricing, you know? Um, you know, and there's also some things that are very rare products and they're very hard to find and the center of the plate cost is astronomical. Like our foie dish, you know, the center of the plate cost is like 40 bucks, you know? And we actually, that's actually our highest food cost item. We still serve it because I think it represents the restaurant incredibly well. Um, but a lot of other restaurateurs would just take that shit off the menu because it costs too much to produce and there's too much loss and there's too much whatever. And it's like, but some things just go along with the concept and you're willing to, to bite that bullet for it. And that's part of the, I guess, the, the art form that it is to really be a restaurant person. Right. You know, you have to, you have to dictate that term. Um, and then like, you know, we have a beef heart tartare and I think it's like 14 bucks or something. And it's like, I don't know if you were to go to like La Bernadette and they had a beef heart tartare, it'd probably be like 35 bucks. But we do that because I, I think it's delicious and I want people to try it. So mm-hmm. that's another one that we carry a heavy cost on the tamale cazuela is one of our higher cost items, like things like that, you know? So it's uh that's one of the more tiring practices because also the cost of things fluctuates so highly. So we actually have software that tells us when we input some of our invoices, like if things get flagged, if it went up fifty cents, a dollar fifty, two dollars, or whatever it may be. I used to do all that by hand. And yeah. it took a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um 
So I think that that's as good a place as any. I'm sure if we kept skimming through comments, there'd be there's some really good ones on there. And I'm really shocked that you didn't get into any of the people saying that I take minimum seven figures home. I, no, tell, that, tell me the things that stand out for you. No, I just really all I did was at the time that I saw it when there were very few comments, I just copied all of them. Yeah, yeah. And no, I mean the, you know, we we read a lot of these comments to my staff. Yeah. Um, because actually, I find it really fascinating that some of these people want people to make more money but then also in return try to harm the restaurant in the process and like left bad yelp reviews or bad open table reviews i don't think open tables google so reviews in response to the washington post story people went on yelp and left yeah. bad reviews yeah um and you know we read we read the reviews to them and we read some of the comments to them and um asked them was like you know do you guys uh, what do you guys think about me <laughs> you know like uh am i am i mean to you or am i am i a bad boss or you know any of these things and like how do you guys feel about these comments they're like we don't get any of that shit you know i'm I'm very open with my staff i don't I'm, a, I'm an open book i don't give a fuck um but some of them were very entertaining you know this guy minimum makes seven figures i was like whew, boy we're just trying to get into the fourth <laughs> you know so like uh I find I, I find that pretty. Some people saying like um, instead of buying my third Porsche to pay my people more, and I was like, I'm I'm almost upset that you think I'm a Porsche guy, um, <laughs> you know. And then we actually had a gentleman from Wyoming uh, call and leave a message. Oh right, yeah. Uh, I wish we could play that, but but can't we play a message since he left a voicemail? So you're, here's the issue. Well, with this kind of guy, I definitely don't want to leave anything because I mean he's definitely in a basement somewhere, just very upset at me. He's well. Uh, I was. I I know where he is. <laughs> That's scary. But I know okay. where he is because I uh, I it's my stalking people is my only marketable skill I picked up in college, uh, and so from his name and phone number I learned all sorts of things. Uh, none of them bad or shocking. Uh, I just I'm curious. Uh, but just in case anybody's curious as to why we're not using this, I don't know if you guys went over the whole like one and two party consent issue. No, I mean, I don't, I mean, I didn't, I'm not going to play it, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, basically there's like 11 states in the country that are two-party consent states, meaning uh, if there's a phone call, both parties on the phone call need to consent to the recording. In most places, they're one-party consent states, meaning if you make a, a phone call, you're one of the parties, and if you record, you're one of the party consenting, you need to tell the other person that they're recording the call. Uh-huh. Florida is a two-party consent state. Wyoming is not, but the issue is... Which of these two places does the law apply to? I would love to play this voicemail. Yeah. But uh, I'm having a hard enough time doing all the other Pancom podcast things without worrying about some dude in Wyoming suing us for this. Um, um, I well, But he did call you an asshole. He said a lot of things. He said a lot of things. Um, uh, things that were echoed in these comments we just read. Yeah. Uh, so I called him back. Oh, you did? Yeah, I called him back. Okay, this is news. Yeah, I called him back. Um, I only called him back because he left the Yelp review. And oh. and at that point, you know, you can call me and attack me all right. you want. But once you start to harm the livelihood of the people around me, then I start to get real edgy. Yeah. And we actually had discussed this before, and you were like, you know, don't be like yourself. Be I didn't op- say that. You did in, in, more, in more words. But, yeah. And I said, you know, I'm, I, w- I wouldn't. This is not, like, the time for me to be – Jacked up, Mike. Right. Um, but the truth is, is that his uh, the conversation with him was less of a conversation, but more of just like another voicemail. 
You know, that it was just more like him yelling at me. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And um, and I, I'm just a true believer if you're going to call someone, and then also if you're going to disrespect someone and call someone names, you better be willing to hear their side. And I think what uh, – I what did he – he told me that I, f- I flew in on a plane with DeSantis. He said a lot of things, man. I'm telling you, this you guy – You flew in on a plane with DeSantis? I guess so. I, I'm a capitalist scum, he called me. Um, yeah, it was like a lot. And I just to, – to a point that I, I almost found it pretty funny because he sounded so amped up. And yeah. just like so unwilling to have a conversation, which we've talked about also on the podcast, is part of the problem in the world. Mm. Um, but all I really told him was, "Listen, I mean, it, you know, you called me. I'm calling you back. You asked for me. Here I am. Uh, I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm not agreeing. And um, I think you should you should think about it before you want to just call someone because you read an article about a thing like." People are interesting human beings. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a story and there's a reason. And there's also running a functional company. And, and that's that takes a lot of work and a lot of time. So um, the mo- at, at the end of all the like 3,000 comments and the the article itself, which I think was was great, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, for for whatever people think about it. Um, my my biggest concern always is my staff and my company. And, you know, my staff seems pretty happy. Uh, you know, obviously work is work and work gets to people in different ways sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, seems pretty happy. I think that the company is growing in a good way. You know, talking about like growth of other concepts, like we pretty much have 80% of the Chugs management team already on property, uh, at least within the next 14 days, which is amazing. Uh, some really talented people. And we we even went outside of Florida and we brought some people from other states and we paid for them to move here and the whole thing. And uh, it's just, you know, finding the best people that, that want to be a part of this thing that we consider to be very special. So yeah. somebody asked me... Um, Last week, they were like, you know, how do you how do you feel like with all these comments? I'm like, do you really think that a, that comments are going to make me feel any less about what we've accomplished? Fuck out of here. Right. Armchair, you know, keyboard warriors are not going to make me feel any different about everything that we've done, sacrificed, and achieved in the last five years ever. Mm-hmm. We're only doing this for, for fun because I don't really care what people have to say about me. Right. You know? But I do find it interesting how many people are willing to jump to conclusions and not not really know shit, mm-hmm. you know. All right, anything you want to end on here? It doesn't even have to be related to all this. Yeah, no. I mean, um, hopefully by the time this is released, everyone's listened to J Cole's new album because it's very good. Okay. Uh, I'd also like to recommend Safe House with Denzel Washington and Ryan Reynolds. Oh, very entertaining. Not like an incredible movie. Didn't you also recommend a Denzel Washington thing uh, with Nadal? Am, am I doubling down here? No, I don't know. I feel like you've mentioned Denzel. I think the uh, the only the real important part of the Nadal episode is uh, his views on WandaVision. No, with Pablo, you mentioned uh, yeah. Denzel. Oh, maybe I'm doubling down on this recommendation. Good, that was good. A lot of Denzel things came up. Denzel's great. Big fan. It is the same person all the time. Though. Doesn't matter. That's fine. He's great. Yeah. Uh, okay. And with that, 
That's it. Bam, 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 bam. Thank you.